0: Following the following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. So what's awesome is I get to stand up in front of you guys and talk about how good God is. <laughs> um, One of the things Marty said that that really kind of struck me as we were worshiping was that it's not about knowing who God is or knowing who Jesus is, right? Because anybody can open up the Bible and and read the words, but it's about having a personal relationship with the God of the universe, right? And what, what made that possible? What makes it possible for us right now to be able to go to the Lord in prayer and to lay it down. right? What makes that possible? It's Jesus. Right? His life, death, resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God where he is right now looking down on us. Right? We, we have a mediator through Jesus to go directly to the Father. And and what causes one to make that profession of faith to submit their lives to him? Right? That he would be the ultimate authority in their life. Right? And, and authority is such, a, such an interesting concept to be able to submit to authority. I think all of us here we submit to authority every day, right? different types of authority. And this is one of the concepts within the past few months that's really been on my mind, real heavy. Um, this is partially because I have to explain the idea of authority to my children almost daily. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm responsible to them because they're so young. right? I'm, I'm responsible to God for them right now. And, but, but there's more to it than that. Right? I try to consider the complex web of authority that exists over each one of us. And, it, and the, the more you think about it, the more complex it seems to get. The more you think you have a grasp on it, the, the harder it is to really explain and to understand. I like to think of it as there being different spheres of authority you guys are visual like me, I'm very geometric. So we have these spheres of authority that exist in and around us each day. And decisions we make may fall within different spheres of authority. So how do we know what's the right decision based on where we are and whose authority we're under? And, that, and that's a very hard thing to think about. And I honestly feel that's one of the things that gave Solomon such great wisdom is that he, un- he greatly understood the reality of authority and how to make decisions and make discernment for the people of Israel. So for, for young people, they're responsible to obey and submit to teachers, parents, government to a certain degree, and other leaders in the community. Adults were responsible to obey or submit to our employers, government at both national and local levels, and to our spouses and families, and, and I'm sure there's others. But there's an ultimate authority in our lives for each one that exists at all times, whether you choose to believe it or not, and it belongs to God. For me, God's ultimate authority has become increasingly important for me to teach my children. Especially as my oldest son keeps getting older, I want him to be able to leave our house and know that he still has a father in heaven. A father that cares for him even more than I do and more than I can. I want him to know that God's authority is not something to rebel against. I want him to to know that he has a, a model when he looks to me That the authority that I have over him models God's authority that is over me. This is the toughest job that I feel anyone can undertake to raise a child. But it can also be the most rewarding. I'm sure that all of you guys had perfect parents, right? And that each of you obeyed your parents perfectly growing up. But take a second today uh, as we go through the passage and we have the message to think about how you handled and responded to the authority that your parents had in your life and how that shapes who you are today. So as we go into the passage for today, I want us to think about the different responses that were made to Jesus' authority. What makes one person choose submission, whereas another chooses grumbling or complaining. So if you guys would um, stand with me, I'm going to pray and then we'll we'll read the word together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray over the the reading of your word this morning, Lord, that, that your spirit would fill this place. Lord, that you would teach us through your word and through your spirit. Father, that your truths would be made evident, Lord, that you would open our eyes, and Lord, that you would just teach us. Father, we can do nothing without you, and I humbly submit myself to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So stay stay standing as we read the word. So this is the passage today is Luke 5, 27 through 32, and it'll be up on the screens says after this he meaning jesus went out and saw a tax collector named levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me and leaving everything he rose and followed him and levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them and the pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You guys may be seated. So I'm going to pull from the parallel passages in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. So this would be Matthew nine, nine through thirteen and Mark two, thirteen through seventeen. And what we see is that in all three gospel accounts, this passage immediately follows the healing of the paralytic that we looked at previously. Upon healing the paralytic, the Pharisees and teachers or scribes were the ones who were questioning in their hearts. They had come from all over Judea and Jerusalem to hear Jesus teach. And there was good reason to think that they were also the ones that are present in our current passage. In order to get a better understanding of the motivation and intention of Levi or Matthew and the Pharisees in this passage we'll have to consider some of the historical nuance from the Old Testament, also from some of the Jewish literature and commentary from that time, as well as historical documents. So instead of bombarding you with all the history up front, we'll examine it as it comes up in the passage. And I just want to, before we dive into the passage, I just want to take a second to tell you guys um, how awesome it's been for me personally to to be able to dig into God's Word and to just dig into the history and the context and be able to share this with you guys, and um, I'm just I feel so blessed this morning to be able to to stand up here and share with you. But I don't want you guys to feel like what I'm saying is the most important thing. I want you to know that each one of you have something to add to this, right? The Lord speaks to each one of you individually and as i as i present the the teaching that was given to me if something comes to to your mind that i don't cover something that you feel is important i want you to share that with me so i'd love to hear what you guys have to say as well so let let's dive into the passage this is uh luke 5 we're going to look at the first two verses 27 and 28 it reads after this this being the the time with the, the paralytic, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So from the the first two verses of Mark 2, 13 and 14, and from Matthew 9, 9, we get a better understanding of who Levi is. We read that the man Levi is also called Matthew. And we believe that this is the, the Matthew that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And we also see that he is the son of Alphaeus, which is one of the pointing characteristics. When we Many times in the Bible, they'll, when they give somebody's name, since many people have the same name, they'll also list the son, the son of to give a better reference of who it is you're talking about or in in some cases they'll say where they're from so if they'll say a common name they'll say from this place and they'll they'll be they'll come to be known by either who their dad was or where they're from so we also read that jesus left the house in which he was previously teaching says after this and we see that he healed the paralytic Mark records Jesus as going out again beside the sea to teach them. So he is now out of the house. He has gone out. Um, We we can see that his disciples and maybe many of those who were there with him, the Pharisees and scribes, also followed as he went out to teach in a different setting or as he went to a, a different place. So what I want to do is I want to take a moment... And I want to review some of the history of Judea from the early 1st century. And this will help us get some context into what we're reading. So in roughly 6 AD, Rome proposed a tax on the native inhabitants of Judea. And this had not been done previous. This outraged the Jews who had previously not paid a tax under Roman rule. This is one of the ways in which they felt oppressed by Rome. Directly following the imposed tax, a man from the region of Galilee named Judas of Gamala became the leader of a resistance to Roman rule. He was very popular with the people, and he even incited violence against other Jews who registered with Rome in the taxation. It is in this light that the Pharisees asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar in Matthew 20, 22. Judas of Gamala, along with Zadok the priest, are considered to be the founders of the fourth sect of Judaism, called the Zealots, the other three being the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Essenes. This is also the same Judas that was spoken of by Gamaliel in Acts five, thirty seven when he spoke in front of the Sanhedrin. So he was a fairly important figure in that time. Josephus, the Roman and Jewish historian, records much of this, the, the resistance in his two books, The Jewish War and Antiquities. So with this historical understanding of the Roman-imposed taxes in Judea, let's take a look at those who were collecting the taxes. So one who wanted to be a tax collector had to bid for the job to the Roman governors or those in charge. And the one with the highest bid usually got the job. So what was the bid? The bid was the amount of taxes that they were going to collect to give to Rome. So the one who told Rome, we can get you the most money is the one who got the job. So as you can see, this may have led to some unethical practices among some of the tax collectors. Mainly because if they collected more money than they said they were going to give to Rome, they could pocket the extra. So you could see how some of them may have been considerably wealthy. Among the Jewish people, tax collectors were considered outcasts. They were traitors, thieves, extortionists. And most important, they were a signpost of Roman rule. They were so hated that they were denied entrance to ceremonial rituals because of their impurity. So Jesus was well aware of this when he told Matthew to follow me. This would have been a very controversial statement for him. So Matthew answered the call. He left everything and followed Jesus. Let's take a second to consider what leaving his post as a tax collector meant. We previously read about the call of Peter, James, John, and Luke. Sorry, Peter, James, and John in Luke 5, 1 through 11. They were professional fishermen and they left everything to follow Jesus, just like Matthew did. However, When they left to follow Jesus, their father or their family members were still able to keep the family business going. They still had the boats, they were still able to go out and fish. We read in John 21, 1-8, this is after Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus revealed himself again to Peter, James, and John, and some of the others, as they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. So they were able to go back to their previous way of life. Matthew, on the other hand, he couldn't return to his post after he left. Would Rome just suspend the tax in that region because Matthew decided to leave his position? Surely not. They would appoint another one in his place just as quickly as he left. We can see that Matthew's call had a very drastic impact on his life. So what was his response to this life-changing event? Let's look at the next two verses, 29 and 30. And we see that, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the first thing we see is that Matthew made a great feast for Jesus. What does his response to Jesus' call to follow me tell us? What does it tell us? So first it tells us that Matthew may have been wealthy. This is worth noting because in Matthew nineteen twenty three through 24, we read Jesus, he says, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And in verses 27 through 29 we read, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, will have, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Second, it tells us that he wanted to celebrate his new relationship with Jesus. I think this is important. He invited everyone he knew a large company of tax collectors and others to the great feast. To be called to follow Jesus was a great honor. And Matthew desired to repay that honor. Jesus' increasing authority demanded fellowship and fellowship. Table fellowship meant that there was close, intimate relationships. Between those present, Matthew desired a close relationship with Jesus. So that's the first response that we see from Matthew. Before we consider the response of the Pharisees and their scribes, let's again get some historical perspective. By the time of Jesus' ministry, the Torah had been interpreted by the scribes and Pharisees to contain not just 10 or 11, but 613 laws called the mitzvah. They were broken down into 14 books. The largest sections are laws on idolatry and paganism with 50 laws. Laws on forbidden relationships, what we're seeing now with 36. 36. Laws on the Sanhedrin and the Punishments with 29. And Laws on Forbidden Foods with 27. And these are the the major ones. These traditions are what kept them set apart from many nations during that intertestament period between Malachi and when Jesus came. However, They were never intended to bring righteousness or salvation. Much of Jesus' teaching amongst the Pharisees was meant to break down the walls that they created through their traditions. And so this is the response The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, and some translations say complained. They grumbled or complained at his disciples about eating with tax collectors and sinners. How many of us are guilty of grumbling and complaining sometimes? I I know I am. Jesus' interaction at the great feast could have broken many of the traditions of the Pharisees, and they grumbled. Grumbling is a response that portrays discontent. Is this the first time we've heard the word grumbling in the Bible? So if you've read the book of Exodus, then you surely have heard about the people's grumbling in the desert after leaving Egypt. Recently I've I've understood, and I'm sure some of you may already know this, but I, I come to understand something really interesting about the 40-year narrative. And that is the response of God to the grumbling and complaining before and after Moses was given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and he gave them to the people. So before the commandments were given in Exodus 19 through 31, Israel's grumbling received a response of grace from God. Grumbling in Exodus 16 about hunger resulted from manna or bread from heaven. Grumbling in Exodus 17 about thirst resulted in water coming out of a rock. Spring coming out of a rock. But after receiving the commandments, when Israel left Sinai in Numbers 10, they almost immediately grumbled about their misfortune in the desert. In Numbers 11 a fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed many in the camp. They grumbled in Numbers 21 about food and water and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and many died. What do we see from this? The law was never intended to bring grace, but instead brought wrath, And death. And this adds new context for us as we read through the book of Romans, especially Romans 7. So, after receiving revelation from God in the person of Jesus, just like in the desert with Moses, the peoples grumbled. And this was a response that God was not enough. So this became more apparent in the rabbinic traditions of the Pharisees in the transition period between A.D. 70 and A.D. 135 after, after the temple was destroyed. So the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, which was also prophesied about. But let's listen to a story from the Talmud, which is one of the, the rabbinic books. So this is called the Oven of Aknai. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this before. So in this story, a man named Aknai made a new oven by combining tiles and sand to an old oven and wanted to know if his new oven was ritually pure or impure. So he took it to the rabbis. In the discussion, one of the views was that the oven was pure. Whereas, the opposing view, was that the oven was, impure. After much debate, and, which included some miracles, pointing to the fact that the oven was pure, finally, a voice, came down from heaven, that said that the oven was pure. But, Those holding the opposing view claim that regardless of any miracle, God had given man the power to interpret the law. There's a famous quote by Rabbi Joshua at the end of the story. And the quote says, The Torah itself is uncovered not by prophets, nor by God's miracles or audible voice but by man's interpretation and decision-making. We see that Jewish literature like the Talmud, Mishnah, Gemara, Targums, even some of the uh, apocryphal works like the Enoch's, Maccabees, we can use them to get an idea of what the people were thinking about at that time about Scripture. And as you can see, they thought very highly of themselves. This type of attitude will display itself as a discontentment towards God's authority. If we see our authority as being higher than God's, then we're not going to be content with what he's given us. There is a similar occurrence to this, to to our current passage in Luke 19, 1 through 10. In this passage, Jesus stopped on his way through Jericho to stay and dine with Zacchaeus. Remember we we little Zacchaeus to climb in the tree? Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully into his house. And in verse 7 we read, and this is the Pharisees, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. What becomes evident is that there are two opposing attitudes toward Jesus. One is that of Matthew and the other disciples who see the relationship with Jesus as paramount. The other attitude is that of the Pharisees and the scribes who see the relationship with the law and the traditions of man as paramount. So how will Jesus respond to these two opposing views? Let's look at the last two verses, 31 through 32. We read, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a very interesting combination of ideas that are happening here, and I'm going to try and pull that out for you. We have the opposing view of well versus sick, and we have the idea of physical and spiritual, right? So let's think about the combinations. I'm a a math person, so I like to put combinations together. So somebody can be physically well and spiritually well. Somebody can be physically well but spiritually sick. Somebody could be physically sick, but spiritually well. And somebody could be physically sick and spiritually sick. Jesus' teachings go beyond the physical world of what is seen, and they point to the spiritual truths that are unseen, Jesus shows that he is the great physician that can bring spiritual health as well as physical health. Previously in Luke, we read about Jesus casting out demons. He healed Peter's mother-in-law instantly. He instantly cleansed the leper. He also called his disciples to follow him and have a relationship with him. And we may not see that relationship with Jesus as a healing, but it is. In the preceding passage, Jesus healed a paralytic and forgave the man his sins in front of the Pharisees and scribes. The Pharisees and scribes question in their heart. He forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. If we look at the Hebrew term for righteousness, Zedek, T-Z-E-D-E-K, it denotes a right standing or relationship with God as a gift of his saving grace. So I'm going to put it together. Jesus' ability to forgive sins demonstrates his equality with God. Therefore, a right relationship with Jesus, the gift of God, determines one's righteousness. Neither the law nor any work of man can earn righteousness. It is that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said he came for the sinners, not the righteous. In this passage, Levi saw himself as a sinner and accepted Jesus as Savior. But those who see themselves as well or righteous, they have no need for a physician or a Savior. Sin is like a disease left untreated that condemns the soul to hell. Seeing oneself as righteous Versus a sinner is in how you see your spiritual condition. One can see themselves as righteous and not think that they need spiritual healing. One can see themselves as a sinner and not want spiritual healing. Or one can see themselves as a sinner and seek spiritual healing. Again, through that personal relationship. So in the parallel passage, this is Matthew 9.13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. Speaking to the Pharisees. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This teaching is evident in another passage where Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. For some reason, Pharisees and tax collectors seem to (laughs) come up a lot. And this is Luke 18, 9 through 14. And we read He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And here's the teaching. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The next question is, What does this mean for us? What are the applications? So the first application point is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is marked by judging others, grumbling, complaining, and discontentment. It's easy for us to point out the fault in the Pharisees' attitude towards Jesus and his disciples, looking at their traditions. But Jesus gave us a teaching on this too. In Matthew 7, 1-4, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. There are times when we may have righteous anger used to judge others. But are we justified in our judgment? It's always important to check our attitudes, our motivations, and our intentions. In times like these. This is something I I say to my children. Grumbling is opposed to worship. And complaining is opposed to praise. James speaks about that. He says, how can fresh water and salt water come out of the same spring? Our mouths. How can we both praise God And speak ill about men at the same time, or speak ill about God. Instead, like the Thessalonians, we are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, says first Thessalonians five, sixteen through eighteen. discontentment is never enough. You guys hear that? Discontentment is never enough. Do we need more than Jesus for righteousness? Listen to Paul's heart for those who pursued righteousness by works of the law. This is Romans ten one through 4 Paul says, Brothers, So what is the appropriate response when we're faced with our own self-righteousness? This takes us to our next point, self-examination. When you are confronted by your own self-righteousness, the Spirit is working in you. It's working to help you examine where you need to submit to Him more fully. The righteous anger that we have towards others can be used to judge ourselves. The law, while it doesn't bring righteousness, does bear witness against us and provides us with knowledge of our sin. When we submit ourselves to the Word made flesh, Jesus, the darkened corners of our lives become apparent. Jesus is the light of the world that illuminates our sin. And when sin becomes apparent in our lives, we have to make a choice. We either maintain a personal relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit, which requires us to follow Him, or we continue in our sin, which is in direct rebellion to God's ultimate authority. So what does it look like to follow Him? Which brings us to our third point. Humble righteousness. Following Jesus declares that He is enough Paul says that his authority is above all others. He says that Jesus is preeminent. Preeminent. Colossians 1:15 through 20 reads, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, making peace by the blood of his cross. Following Jesus means that we continually seek a personal relationship with him. There is no formula of prayer. There is no ABC ritual which you can earn right standing with God. Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Internally, humble righteousness is a life of conviction, confession, and repentance to God. Like Matthew we're called to leave everything from our old life and our old self and sin and embrace the new life given by Jesus and righteousness. This is motivated by God's love and Christ's return and is a work of the Holy Spirit. Externally, humble righteousness looks like a life of faith, hope, and love. We see this is how when Matthew left everything, he followed Jesus and the first thing he did was invited the tax collectors and others to celebrate, to a celebration that he had in Jesus' honor. For us, how do you celebrate your relationship with Jesus? Share your faith, Invite others to see what the Lord has done. Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Humble righteousness is also a life that shines the light of Jesus rather than their own. Again, it's a life that shines the light of Jesus rather than our own light. Each believer lives before the light of the Lord and must live out their relationship with Him in a manner that communicates His love to the darkness of a dying world. As, as Lizette spoke earlier, you know, we have some amazing, amazing believers in this church. Believers that live out the relationship, that follow Jesus Those playing in the band, those up in the the tech booth, the ones serving in children's ministry right now, small group leaders, those who help to, to run some of the amazing programs that we have that reach out to the community to show them how much Jesus loves them. And as the worship team comes up, I want to tell you, a sinner is declared righteous by God's grace through one's faith in Christ's merit and worthiness, not our own worthiness. I just want to tell you guys It is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ that's going to shine out to the world. Nothing else is going to shine out but Him. Thank you.